You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week I'm going to be talking to somebody who would like to remain anonymous. We're talking about her experience with diabulimia. Diabulimia is a type of eating disorder that happens when a person has type 1 diabetes and then they start to use eating disorder behaviors or insulin control to control their weight. We start this conversation by my anonymous friend telling us a little bit about herself. I was diagnosed as type 1 diabetic when I was nine, a week before my 10th birthday. Then due to um, some treatment I received for the eating disorder when I was 12, I'd had quite a few other kind of medical tests and things done because my diabetic control was so good because of the lack of food. I wasn't needing a lot of insulin. I wasn't having um, very low or very high blood sugar levels. Um, and as a result of those tests, they found out that I actually had quite an unusual form of diabetes called MODI, which is, I think it's categorized more akin to type 2 diabetes, but it's treated in the same way as type 1, and it's quite unusual. So for all intents and purposes, I'm treated in the same way as a type 1 um, diabetic. And um, I guess my, my eating disorder history is that I developed kind of plain vanilla classic anorexia when I was 12, and then the anorexia really spiraled when I was about kind of 12 going on 13, uh, at which point in the space of about six months, I'd lost a third of my body weight and I was towards the lower end of the healthy BMI scale kind of as it was and um, became very, very unwell and was on the verge of being sectioned by CAM, so like the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service in the UK. I remember sitting in my bed at home on the evening after my parents had taken me home from the, the outpatient hospital and said, and brought me this bowl of cereal of, I think of brown flakes or something, but they brought me like this bowl of cereal and they said, and my mum was literally there and she was saying, you have to eat this, you have to eat this. And I don't know what it was, but I was so distressed and so upset that I just ate it. And that started a three month period of what you refer to as feast eating. So I ate and I ate and I ate for three months and I ate no diabetic friendly foods at all. Um, all cakes and chocolates and all of the things that I'd been restricting. And one of the things that the, the medical team had tried to get me um, to drink when I was underweight and I'd feigned drinking and poured away and done all of the usual anorexia um, guises getting out of eating um, were these things called Scandi shakes. And they're basically like these meal replacement shakes. Um, but they are actually really nice ones in terms of they're very, well, they're just full of sugar, basically. So they just take like, taste like a McDonald's milkshake so that they're really quite enjoyable. But um, when I started having those initially, um, my blood sugars went absolutely off the scale because I hadn't been having them before. And so they, they'd assume, the medical team had assumed, well, those are fine for people with diabetes. Um, but then when I actually started drinking them, the sugars went off the scale and I didn't put on any weight. So I was eating a huge volume of food, a lot of calories, really a lot of food. And I wasn't putting on an ounce. And at one point I was actually losing weight as well, despite being so extremely underweight. Um, 
And I suppose that was the first experience I'd had of what's referred to as diabolemia, um, which for for any listeners that aren't um, aware, diabolemia um, refers to when predominantly type 1 diabetic patients do not take insulin, um, which is something that they need to break down and metabolize food, particularly carbohydrates um, and sugars. Um, They don't take their insulin because they know that if they don't take their insulin, they can eat whatever they like, which if they're restricting, that's probably high fat, high carb, high sugar foods and not put on any weight at all. And in some cases, lose weight. Um, And so that was my experience. And it was completely inadvertent at first. And at that point, I assumed that my brain was being nourished to some extent because I, I didn't put two and two together and think, oh, this is this is quite quite nice I'm going to carry on doing this I did I took the insulin um I got things under control again it was all a bit up and down anyway just because of the types of food I was having to eat at that point um to get to to weight restoration um but when my BMI reached I think it was about it was 18 or something that the medical profession they basically thought oh well she's out of the woods she's clearly put on all of this weight she's fine and at that point, my parents were very much, I think they they was they were scared by the amount that I was eating as well, because they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't ever think I had an eating disorder at that point. Um, and so they were very much like, oh, great. So you can stop all of the, the eating now. Like, you don't have to eat so much food. Like, you can just go back to normal, quote, now and eat like, normal foods and normal portions and go back to kind of caring about your diabetes and what's healthy for that. And... Because at that point, I was in no way mentally recovered, no, nowhere close. Um, I hadn't received any psychological support at that point because I, I was hell bent on not getting help, like mental help at that point. And my parents, because I'd assured them, being the eating disorder kind of mindset, I'd assured them, I'm fine. I've got this under control. Um, they didn't compel me to to go and get treatment. And and, and to be quite honest with you, at that point, the only treatment that was um, offered to me was an inpatient facility that was hundreds of miles away. I think it was in Scotland. Um, It was hundreds of miles away from them anyway. And that was the last thing they wanted. They were already so concerned that for me to then be kind of whisked off away to the other side of the country uh, wasn't something um, that they they were keen to do at all. And so I kind of I'd reassured them and I was going back to this um, kind of regular, quote, pattern of eating what with what I now realize was very much quasi recovery. And then I suppose at that point it was a conscious effort to kind of pursue, for lack of a better word, the diabolemia in terms of I would look at I'd be craving all of these high sugar kind of. I don't like to throw in the junk foods, but like processed foods, um, I'd be craving them. And I didn't feel able to give myself permission to have those foods and take my insulin at the same time. It, it, it went kind of in dribs and drabs. So, so I did that for a couple of years. And then after that time, I just worked out that it felt so rubbish to abuse the diabetes in that way. Because I mean, I don't, 
I don't know what the experience is like for anyone with an, an eating disorder, particularly anorexia, uh, without diabetes, because that hasn't been my experience. As I said, it's, it's set in at nine and I developed the eating disorder when I was 12. So I've only ever had an eating disorder with the diabetes. But I cannot convey how weak and how tired and how horrendous it feels to have low blood sugars and then how tired and just faint and unwell I, I felt when my blood sugars were high as well and when the blood sugars were low and I was very much in the anorexia stage there was this immense fear of having to eat in order to bring the blood sugars up again because I was taking next to no insulin but there was this huge fear of if my blood sugars go too low and I could go into a coma, I'm going to have to eat something that wasn't planned for. And looking back on that, that is hugely scary because I would, I would, and I think as well, the, the issue I had was that I was getting a lot of positive um, reinforcement from my diabetic team until my weight became a concern. I was getting a lot of positive reinforcement because my blood sugar control was exemplary because I wasn't eating, I was having next to no insulin, and my blood sugar control was excellent. And so from their perspective, I was the model patient, the model diabetic patient, which definitely plays into my kind of classic plain vanilla anorexia type personality or susceptibility, because I'm very kind of type A, very perfectionistic, really want to please people. From a purely physical perspective, um, if I don't eat, my blood sugars go extremely low because I have to take a certain amount of insulin. My body doesn't produce that. And so I need to take, um, long acting and short acting insulin, um, several times a day. Um, if my blood sugars go too low, I become shaky, faint, cannot function. I've, I mean, when I've had, um, they're called hypos or hypoglycemia, which I know that a lot of people with um, anorexia kind of deal with anyway. But I think with diabetic people, it is just amplified because alongside the anorexia, you're also dealing with this chronic health condition. Um, and so extremely weak um, to the extent that if I was trying to get food when I was had a very low blood sugar, I would have to hold on to work surfaces and things in order to not fall over just to get some food uh, to go and get something um and i and i actually i'm very fortunate in that i feel unwell whereas i know that for a lot of diabetic people sometimes they don't and it's just a case of one minute they're walking around and the next minute they're absolutely out cold on the floor um from the other end of the spectrum when the blood sugars are high and if i weren't to take insulin um I become extremely tired, extremely thirsty, unable to sleep through the night. So because I'll be drinking so much, I'll need to keep getting up in the night to use the bathroom. Um, and I suppose the, the invisible signs, if you like, that can't be seen, are that uh, when the blood sugars are high, that's when things like um, damage to the retina occur. So blindness um, can lead to... Um, 
because of the circulatory issues that are caused, amputations in fingers and toes are quite common. I didn't know about the blindness thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's very common. And diabetic people um, have to have retinal screenings every year um, to check, just to photograph the retina to see if there's any um, signs of what they call diabetic retinopathy. Um, that is quite a common um, side effect of just mismanaged diabetes inadvertent. But obviously, with with diabolemia, if someone is doing that on such an extreme um, level, then that that can be um, um, accelerated quite quite substantially. So people that are really quite young could lose their sight. Um, Did you know suppose, that that was a risk? Yeah, I did, and I and I can honestly say I didn't think about it at the time. I, I, on a logical level, I knew what all the risks were because other risks are things like kidney damage, damage to organs and things. It, it's really really serious and in some cases like organ transplantation but to me because the anorexia was so strong at that point none of it mattered it was I want to be thin and I don't want to eat more than I'm eating now and if I do eat then I can't take that insulin and that's just the way it is I know I know that when when I was um and I had active anorexia sometimes I think it's part of that anosognosa thing not really knowing how sick you are or how how risky things are but you can sort of know that something's a risk and do it anyway it's like if you feel like you're special and that won't happen to you yeah sure and I think as well like with me I was pulled up on it by my medical team because I was so underweight but diabolemia can happen like anorexia in someone of any shape any size body so someone doesn't have to be massively underweight. And because mismanagement of diabetes, it can happen quite innocently. It's quite a difficult condition to manage. And, it dif- and, and the management of it differs hugely between um, individuals. And so it can quite easily slip under the radar of medical professionals unless someone actually comes out and asks for help, which, as you say, if someone is so hell-bent on restricting, then that, that may never happen. So what helped you to understand that you couldn't continue to do what you were doing? Honestly, I think the only thing that got me out of the diabolemia was kind of moving into orthorexia, <laughs> which, is, which is horrendous. But, but I, I got into this mindset of, I feel really bad when I eat all this kind of junk food because I'm not taking my insulin so I equated that with I must feel really bad if I eat all this processed food it doesn't it doesn't matter about the insulin or whether I take it or not it's definitely the food and so I can eat as much as I like provided it's healthy and then that went down a whole other rabbit hole and so the the diabolemia became kind of irrelevant if you like at that stage because I found this other way of restricting and so that wasn't really required anymore. And it's only when I look back on it and I've, and, I've managed, and I've managed to get myself to a point of enough physical recovery to think I don't want to do any of those things that I can see like, that there wasn't any conscious effort on my part to say, oh, well, I'm really scared of the potential of going blind mm. or of losing my foot or something. Like it, what, there wasn't anything nearly that rational. It was very much like, this is the way to go because look at all these people 
in, on Instagram or whatever that are oh, eating clean and this is what I should be doing. But many people do that. I mean, that's yeah. most of us cycle through every type of fad diet or, or stage and you do something maybe for a year or so and then you just it gets tiring and you're looking for something else that's also going to um, help you feel safe but not but but allow you to I guess change what you're doing um, and so it sounds like it's just that with that move to orthorexia was a way that it helped you feel safe um, but it was it enabled you to change and just switch to do something different which isn't ideal either well no far from it <laughs> yeah yeah um okay so anything else that you think is relevant on the diabulimia part having a quick look at that documentary that i mentioned to you which was the bbc3 diabulimia it's like it's called something like the world's deadliest eating disorder or something which i mean it's open to debate but um but um they quoted a, a study which said that 60% of type 1 diabetic women have experienced an eating disorder by the time they're 25. So it's extreme. I think it is extremely common. And I also think that it's extremely difficult to um, not only to diagnose, but to get help. Because um, I know people who have been, who, who are clinically very underweight, so they should meet the threshold of Kind of inpatient treatment just as an eating disorder standalone kind of illness but no inpatient facility will take them because they're diabetic right yeah and they don't and they don't have the diabe diabetes knowledge and they don't know how to adapt the standard meal plan that's given to everyone and everyone has to eat the same right so they see um, it as a risk it, that they can't take on yeah okay yeah, absolutely and so what do you think needs to happen in the treatment field in order to be able to serve, which it sounds like quite a high percentage of people with um, type 1 diabetes may also have an eating disorder or be using that to control their weight. So what do you think, in, in your experience, what could have been offered and what do you think that could have helped you maybe earlier on? I think that the first step with anything is awareness. Because at the time that I suffered with diabulimia, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't like it wasn't recognised particularly. And I think that a lot of um, women, but I think men too, like there haven't been any stats on it. But I'm sure men as well deal with the the same issue in young boys as well. Um, just to raise it as an issue and to really monitor them closely in terms of every every diabetic child and adolescent and adult even should have regular diabetic appointments and their um, kind of average blood glucose level their hba1c level which is the average blood sugar for taken over i think it's three or six months um will show whether they've had kind of high blood sugar levels for that period and so that will kind of give away if they've been abusing, not taking insulin or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so raising awareness among the consultants, diabetic consultants, that this is a thing. And then interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary even um, discussion. So have the diabetic dietitians work with the eating disorder dietitians um, and help people manage things in a way that isn't obsessive because I know that with me asking me to count carbs 
was not helpful because for saying you can have X number of carbohydrate portions a day for this insulin wasn't helpful. Um, and so maybe just t- taking a more relaxed approach to it saying, you know, you're taking this amount of insulin at the moment and you did this amount of insulin with this meal. So how were your blood sugars after that? Okay. So maybe you need a bit more insulin if it was high or okay, maybe that was a bit too much insulin. So maybe we just out- dial it down a unit. Don't go into this carb counting right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't play into things that eating disorders already like, like to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like what you said about the interdisciplinary things there. It seems like it's a no-brainer and that, that that should happen anyway if somebody has diabetes and they also have an eating disorder, that um, people work together. Um, but I guess maybe probably even it's probably even harder in the USA than it is in the UK because at least in the UK you have the NHS. And I did find when I lived in the UK things were more interwoven on the NHS because it's one organization trying to work together. Whereas in the USA, it does feel more difficult that you could, doctors don't necessarily talk to each other and specialists aren't necessarily working for the same organization even. I agree. I think as well, because each um, trust, NHS trust in the UK will have a segregated area. And within that trust, there will be a diabetic dietitian and an eating disorder dietitian. Um, and so it should, in theory, be possible for them to liaise. Um, mm. But I don't know why that doesn't... I mean, I guess because it's not picked up on. Right. The, the importance isn't understood, is it? The, I guess, no. like, a lot of people who may be a diabetic specialist are not an eating disorder specialist, so they're not, it's just not on their radar, maybe, that people can use, use being a type 1 diabetic to control their weight as much as it should yeah. be. I mean, to me, it seems really obvious, but my head's in eating disorder world. So it, it would do, I guess, maybe if, if your head's not in eating disorder world, and especially if you, you work in a health system that is obsessed with what they call the obesity crisis, then maybe that is also a factor that plays into it. Absolutely. I definitely agree. I think um, particularly with something like diabetes, because what I've experienced a, a lot um just among the general population is a lot of confusion between type 1 and type 2 diabetes Mm. and so if you say you're diabetic they just assume you're type 2 diabetic they don't really understand what type 1 diabetes is I think also what's tied up a lot in diabetic dietitians in particular is this whole weight management paradigm in that when they get a type 1 patient their objective is to get them to get their insulin levels under control primarily through dieting behaviors it can be difficult when as you say when people aren't really acquainted with the eating disorder world as it were um that they don't understand why someone wouldn't take their insulin if it makes them feel really bad do you think that there's anything anybody could have done or said that would have made that would have helped you out because i know that we'll have family members listening to this it's always a tricky subject. <laughs> like you said, you were pretty resistant to help and support initially, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. If you can think back, if anybody could have said something that might have helped you. That you have to reach a certain point of just being sick and tired of it and wanting help. But I think if someone is in that frame of mind, but they don't feel like they can give themselves permission to just go ahead and I guess in the early stages of recovery, eat all the food. 
um, just giving someone the permission to do that. Because that's all I wanted when I went to go and see dietitians. There's nothing that they could have taught me about nutrition or about diabetes management that I didn't know already. I was obsessed. And so I think I th- just all I wanted was for someone to give me the permission and say, you know what? If you want to eat five boxes of Krispy Kremes, you go for it. and We'll help you manage the insulin with that. So a big thank you to my anonymous friend there. Some of you might be wondering how she's actually doing. So I asked her and she said, in terms of where I am with my own recovery, I have recovered fully from diabolemia and have been fully recovered for 10 years. I mean, the later stages of recovery for both anorexia and orthorexia, and mentally I feel as if I'm very close to being fully recovered. I also asked her if there was one thing that she, if there was anything that she would say to somebody with type 1 diabetes who is also dealing with an eating disorder. And she said that that thing she would tell them would be to reach out for support. Please tell someone, their family, a friend, an eating disorder therapist, or anyone on the diabetes treatment team, preferably someone who ascribes to a Hayes model. Taking that first step and asking for help can be terrifying, but you reach out and the amount of support and love you could be shown will surpass any expectation that you have. Diabolemia is a lethal illness, and in addition to all the long-term implications of an eating disorder, it has all of the long-term side effects of poorly managed diabetes, such as amputation, blindness, organ damage, and failure. This is no joke, and anyone struggling deserves a life so much better than they currently have. They are worthy of recovery. Never underestimate the courage and the strength you have just living with diabetes every day. It's a real achievement just living with it, and life doesn't need to be made harder by introducing an eating disorder into the mix. Not that an eating disorder is a choice. If they feel unable to give themselves permission to seek help, I am giving it it to them now. Go and get help so that you can live a wonderful, free life. You so deserve it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you have a recovery story to share, or if you have something that you think you would like to hear covered in this podcast, please email me at info at tabithafra.com or you can tweet me. It's at love underscore fat underscore. Cheers and until next time, cheerio.